Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Melbourne. It's been voted the world's most livable city on numerous occasions. But is it the world's most resilient? Urban scholars like Lars Conan argue that a city's resilience comes from its innovation. Professor Lars Conan is the inaugural City of Melbourne Chair of Resilient Cities, an initiative between the City of Melbourne and the University of Melbourne aimed at improving the city's resilience to sustainability challenges. Lars is an interdisciplinary scholar, cross-cutting the fields of innovation studies, economic geography and science and technology studies. His research interests converge around the geography of innovation, addressing questions such as how can regions and cities improve their capacity to innovate. In particular, he's interested in addressing questions on innovations related to pressing societal challenges, like climate change. Our reporter, Steve Grimway, chatted to Lars Conan about his work and whether it's possible that we Melburnians have become so complacent with most livable that it's holding us back from adapting to the changing world. Lars, welcome to Eavesdrop on Experts. Thank you very much. Now, let's say you're at a barbecue with that uncle who you haven't seen since he gave you a pocket calculator in 1985. Uh Imagining that? Yep. He asks you what you're doing now. And you're not sure he's fully going to understand what a scholar cross-cutting the fields of innovation studies and economic geography actually does. What do you tell him? I'd actually sort of go back to that pocket calculator that he gave me in the 80s and say, you know, at that time, that was a typical example of an innovation. And it was probably also something that was characteristic of of the 80s because we had a lot of sort of new technology being thrown at us. Um, especially in the field of, you know, TV and IT and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'm studying innovation and a lot of people would immediately think about, you know, new technologies. And nowadays we would think about apps and um, stuff like that. But what my research really tries to sort of poke at is to understand the process of how innovation comes about. It's, it's partly about the outcomes of, you know, new products and new processes and that often kind of has something to do with technology Um, but I'm really interested in you know the process of you know how do these sort of novelties come about how do they spread and you know I'm a geographer so I'm then interested in where does innovation happen where does the process of innovation happen um, and why there are there specific characteristics tied to a city a region a country that can help me explain why that innovation happened just there. So perhaps I'm, I'm going to ask the, the 101 question. How do we explain what innovation is and what it's not? What it's not is it's not an invention. It's more than that. A lot of people, I think, you know, um, conflate innovation for invention and, you know, also think that innovators are inventors. I would say an inv- invention is an important part of an innovation, but an innovation is more than that. There are many inventions, and you know you can think about the, the stereotype of the crazy inventor. Um, just go to the movies, Back to the Future, and you know they're they're novelties, they're technological novelties, crazy inventions, but they never really made it big. Uh, so an innovation is really when 
that invention has become adopted by society, by the market, and you know it's more than just a prototype or a sort of a, a funny gadget. It is really something that, that as we say in innovation jargon, has diffused. So it is the end result. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's just, you know, it's not necessarily the end result because even if it's sort of starting to diffuse in like apps, you know, once they've been, say, adopted and commercialized, that doesn't mean that they're reaching an end point. They're still development. So you could get app version 1.1, 1.2, 2.1. So it's an end point, but also that end point is sort of constantly shifting. It's constantly in development. And that's the same with technologies. There's never really sort of the perfect end point of a technology or of a new product. It keeps on developing. I hear a lot of talk about the culture of innovation. So I'm interested in what we need to surround us to make a culture of innovation. Yeah, that's a great, a really interesting question and really something that speaks to you know, a geographer, because as soon as you go to different countries and regions, you would note cultural differences. And I'm born in the Netherlands. I've spent a lot of my career in Sweden, and now I find myself in um, a wonderful Melbourne. Uh, so I've experienced also a fair bit of sort of changing cultures. Um, and I could really sort of sense there is a different culture of in, around innovation uh, if I start to compare Sweden and Scandinavia uh, with Australia. So... My sort of experience in Sweden, there's a lot of effort, a lot of a focus on collaboration between organizations and individuals, and that it's really sort of in collaboration that innovation happens. Whereas the culture of innovation in Australia, I would describe as much more individualistic. It is really, you know, more leaning towards that heroic entrepreneur, heroic inventor that has a stroke of genius and comes up with, you know, the bionic ear. I'd probably say that that actually doesn't really play into the advantage of Australia as an innovation nation. I think it is, in a sense, punching much below its weight because we've got a very individualistic mindset about how innovation comes about here. Is that a measure of uh, or a reflection of our cultural values and maybe, you know, libertarianism uh, versus socialism? And sorry to go very broad <laughs> on this. Or is it less than that? Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to start describing Sweden as sort of the last resort of socialism. But um, it, I, I do think it has something to do with individualistic values, yes. So, um, and it, I also don't want to sort of say that this is sort of, you know, an end point and it's always going to be like this. I sort of notice that as also Australian politicians, policymakers and businesses are becoming increasingly aware of the need for innovation, they also start to better sort of understand and appreciate that you don't just go about alone when innovating. You need to coordinate and collaborate. So I wouldn't say that this is just, you know, doomed to be forever like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is a fair, you know, observation to say that, you know, in Australia is a more individualistic country. You know, the political system is more towards a liberal market uh, economy, the political economy. Um, and yeah, that, that obviously has an impact on the way that the country um, goes about in terms of innovation. It's interesting because I think you wrote or spoke about the fact that um, as an OECD measure, Australia is at the bottom of the table with regards to that word collaboration. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's more specific than that, but I'll leave it at that. That seems to be against the grain for me because I would have thought we are very much community minded, but yeah. I'm not sure why that happens. So, I mean, I use that 
statistic are often to sort of make make the point about you know we need to think more about collaboration and innovation but you know i'm i'm also mindful that often statistics are a bit you know you use them for your own purposes so that oecd statistic that you're referring to is also quite a narrow measure of innovation it rather actually measures commercialization of research mm-hmm. which is a way of going about with innovation but it's not you know all of it um, and I think what it really does point to is that we've got a poor track record in collaboration between our universities and industry and the business sector. That's what it really is saying. But I have seen very promising examples of innovation and of collaborative innovation, but where innovation takes a different form. So, you know, just looking at, for example, the the way that the city of Melbourne and other local governments in in metropolitan Melbourne are experimenting with an urban forest is to me a, a great example of an innovation, but it would be the kind of innovation that's perhaps not captured um, in in such OECD statistics. It seems to be that it uh, that probably falls into the measure of public good rather than driving productivity, and I guess that brings us to the idea of you know what is the purpose of innovation, yeah. and and have we got an outdated mo- model of what it should be? Yeah, I, I mean it depends on who's we here. I think a lot of the um, the political discourse around really innovation is outdated. I think. Um, I think Malcolm Turnbull had a good point a couple of years back when he released his innovation statement um, and said we need to think about how the Australian economy is going to transition from a resource-based economy to a knowledge economy. But then very quickly it just turned again into just understanding innovation as commercializing research um, and commercializing um, technologies. And, you know, and it's sort of a bit disappointing to see that that's also reflected in the way that government tries to support innovation at the federal level because that's the the only thing the only instrument that they consider is do using R&D rebates and that's a very you know that's a policy instrument that treats innovators as individual organizations or as individuals again you know completely counter to how actually innovation goes about it does not support you know organizations firms to collaborate so it's also part of that sort of, you know, the the feel good, the bit the bravado that that surrounds around innovation. About, you know, we're a country of technological leadership, and um, we're cutting edge, and we really, you know, provide the new uh, products and technologies in in you know the twenty first century economy. Uh, I think you know innovation can be much more mundane. Uh, like, you know, illustrated with the example of, of a, an urban forest or illustrated with examples from, you know, as mundane practices as bicycling. Um, it's maybe not something that, you know, captures your imagination as a bionic ear or a bionic eye does, but it is the kind of innovation that I think is really required to much more think about and emphasize when we start to think about innovation in the face of sustainability challenges. So, I mean, you've spoken about the Australian government's inability to have, well, reluctance to develop more levers or with the fact that we don't have many levers to pull with regards to innovation from a federal level. Are there federal governments elsewhere that are doing more? Yeah. So Europe, I think, is really being very progressive in that respect. I mean, if, if in Europe you want to get funding for your research or for your innovation, you would always have to come with a a consortium 
you would always have to collaborate. You couldn't just sort of get, you know, public funding for research or public funding for innovation if you just say, well, we are going to develop this great new thing. And equally, they're really tying funding for innovation to grand societal challenges, saying we really need to sort of engage with climate change. Um, We really need to engage with, uh, you know, aging societies or refugee crises. Um, And they're also, for example, using public procurement as a way to try and stimulate uh, innovation and sort of um, incentivize companies to come up with, with solutions. So they've out, they're deploying a much broader spectrum of, uh, of, um, of policy tools, but they're also engaging much more in a sort of conversation and in a mode of coordination with business uh, to hear about, you know, what are your bottlenecks? What, what are, the, what are your, your barriers to innovation? And what can we as a public sector, as government, do in order to help you to become better innovators? I find that that conversation not really happening in Australia and often it's sort of conceived as um, that is something very risky, that is not something the government should do, it's commercial and confidence so there's a much more, you know, a, a distance between government and, you know, government policy to to foster innovation and the sectors that are supposed to be targeted there's, there's no real sort of interaction and coordination happening compared to Europe but equally I think you know that you know parts of the US are, are recognizing that I'm guessing am I right to say that you probably believe less in a top-down approach to innovation than a, a bottom-up approach well I, it's a tricky one I don't think it's either or it's mm-hmm. top-down and, and bottom-up are sort of two sides of the same coin so I believe that you know you can't just sort of plan innovation, like say, oh, we're going to just, you know, we're going to solve climate change in the next five years and we're going to just throw a lot of money at it and, you know, this, these are the technologies that we need to develop and off we go. You've just ruined the only way I saw us out of this problem. Yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> I feel terrible now. <laughs> no, but because um, it, it would quench a lot of creativity. Yep. Right? So by just sort of saying, you know, picking the winners you'd also, you know, exclude a lot of others who might become the winners. So um, it's about, you know, opening up for variety creation in a sort of a, you know, bottom-up way, let thousand flowers bloom, but also then acknowledging that not all those thousand flowers will solve climate change. So at some point you need to also in a top-down way be sort of selective and say, listen, um, this innovation here, it's not really going anywhere. Mm-hmm. We we need to sort of cut the funding for that. Whereas others, you know, we not, we really see some promising developments and we really need to sort of increase funding and increase support for that. I think that's, again, you know, with reference to Europe, Europe that's what they're doing really well over there. It's a really, I guess it's a mature culture as well because all of a sudden it goes beyond developing an innovation culture. It goes to accepting failure and it goes to celebrating failure and it goes to having those, and you've talked about those hard conversations you have to actually say, well, actually, you're going to be one of the 90% of projects that fail and trying to cut it off before you go too far. Yeah, sort of, you know, uh, fail fast. Yeah. Um, and and share, you know, the lessons that learn, that are learned from failure. Um, in my research on, you know, the geography of innovation, what I often heard from successful innovators and entrepreneurs was that, you know, they are in places like Silicon Valley 
are in sort of innovation clusters, not just to hear about all the successful innovations and the successful sort of research that's happening, but really also to find out about what went wrong in experiments and what went wrong with sort of, you know, the development of certain technologies and so on. It's that kind of knowledge which is as important as, you know, the, the success cases. Who, what uh, areas, what regions have turned around their approach to re- uh, innovation well and reasonably quickly, and what have they done? That's a really interesting question. Um, a, re- a region that I have a lot of respect for is the rural area in Germany, which used to be sort of the heartland of the coal and steel industry in, in Europe 50 years back. But they realized that coal and steel were declining industries. A lot of jobs were being lost there. And it took them 50 years, but they've really managed to turn around, you know, that dependence on coal and steel. And now it's a region that's thriving with renewable energy companies, um, but also a, a region that is thriving in terms of cultural industries. So they've really managed, you know, from being a old industrial region locked into, you know, dependence on industries that are dying, that are shedding law, jobs that are becoming increasingly less competitive, to transforming into something which, you know, again, has a promising uh, development trajectory. Um, but again, you know, the, the, the hard message here is also that that took a lot of time. That took five decades. And that's often something that, you know, decision makers politicians don't really want to hear like okay for example if we take the case of the Latrobe Valley in Australia it is also a region that you know is going to undergo a lot of transformation and that is not just going to happen within the next few years that's going to take decades. To that point I mean I get the sense that the general public you know doesn't really warm to the idea of change in general you know um, however real it is. Uh, but also, um, with that in mind then, what do you think the public feels about innovation? There's a wonderful slide um, I once found on, on social media, uh, which says in that, which exactly captures that, that image, like innovation, yes, change, no. <laughs> um, innovation is sort of, you know, I guess in that sort of picture seen as, you know, change is already there. It's sort of that, uh, that new iPhone or that new app um, it's sort of the, the glitzy novelty, whereas change is more about behavioral change. It is about political change, which are equally part of, you know, those changes that come with new technologies. But it's the dimensions of change that we find much more difficult to talk about and to address. Mm. So we're all about, you know, it's what you said about climate change. Yeah, we just find the new technologies. We just, you know, replace all our energy with renewable energy and the problem's fixed. Uh, probably yes, but it's not just a technological change. It's also a change in the way that we organize our energy markets. Uh, in you know, it's a political change. It's a change of how we as individuals engage with energy. Cultural change. Our norms and values are changing, and it's these kind of parts of the change process which I guess we feel less uh, excited and, and enthusiastic about because they go outside our safety zones or outside of our con- comfort zones. If we start talking about, yeah, you you know, you'd also need to change your behavior. People go like, oh, really? Mm. Then then you kind of fall back into more conservative behavior, I guess. Does innovation find itself more city or country-based? And I ask that because I think I know the answer. However, small farmers in Australia, I always think of my mates on small farms, and they are incredibly innovative. I mean, their approach to their work, that's at the base mm-hmm. of it. Um, and yet I think that probably innovation probably centers in cities. Yeah. 
Again, it depends on what you understand as innovation. So if you think of innovation as new technology and if you think of innovation as commercializing, you know, high-level research, yes, it would be concentrated in big cities. It would be concentrated in places where you've got leading universities and a lot of sort of venture capital and so on, the Silicon Valleys and the Hyderabads um, in the world. But my point would be, well, innovation comes in different forms and sizes and... Every city and every region has potential to be innovative because it is about being creative. It is about trying out new things. And as you said, you know, with, with your example with from farming, there's a lot of, you know, novelty happening within farming. A lot has to do with, you know, technologies, drones and so on and so on, but also just changing practices, how farmers are engaging differently with, you know, the natural environment and how they're engaging with drought. I mean, lots of crisis also coming at us that requires us to be innovative. So I don't see it as sort of necessarily something happening in in rural or in, in, in urban areas. It happens in both and it just comes in different ways. And I think, again, that's something to also pick up in the way we think about how can we support uh, innovation, you know, from a policy perspective. There's no one size fits all a region that is having a lot of universities and a lot of you know talented people like Melbourne requires different innovation support than a region like the Latrobe Valley. But they can be innovative. Both places can be innovative in their own right. Sounds like you uh, you should respect innovation with perhaps a minister for innovation and, and keep that going uh, forward. Anyway, um, sorry, for those who aren't <laughs> aware, we did used to have one of those, but we don't anymore in Australia. Anyway, um, you're the inaugural City of Melbourne Chair of Resilient Cities, uh, which is an an initiative between the City of Melbourne and the University of Melbourne aimed at improving the city's resilience to sustainability challenges. I guess the the next question is obvious. What are are our key uh, sustainability challenges, especially for cities? Again, that's very place-specific. And let's take the example of Melbourne, because I'm the city of Melbourne, share resilient cities. So a lot of my work is really engaging with the sustainability challenges in this um, in this place. And I see that we've got some real issues with um, our transport system. Coming from overseas, I find Melbourne extremely car-centric and it doesn't really seem to be engaging with that challenge very much either. I mean, there's still sort of the way that we seem to want to solve the congestion is by just building more roads. And also just the way that, you know, neighbourhoods are being planned. It's it's all sort of from a mindset of people are going to drive around in cars. So compare that to, you know, again, places in, in Asia and in Europe, which have much more public transport and also much more active transport. Um, so I think that's sort of a, a real sort of sustainability challenge for, for Melbourne. But equally, you know, there are issues with housing affordability, which is, is, is a tricky one because building and owning property in Melbourne um, is very lucrative. It's a great development. It's a great investment object. But it also sort of, you know, increasingly drives out people and makes it a less livable, a less creative place. The thing I want to emphasize with sustainability sort of challenges is also that, you know, there are wicked problems. So... We can't really solve them. I might have just said, you know, how do we solve them? It's it's not about solving them. It's it's more about how do we tame them? Because as soon as we start addressing, you know, the transport challenge in, in, in Melbourne, we're, we're going to run into other problems of land use, of 
health and safety on roads. You know, when we get more bicyclists, we'll get also more, you know, potential for accidents and so on and so on. So it's not like you just identify the problem and then, you know, you try and solve it. it the, the problem and the framing of the problem is going to change as you start addressing it. And it may create different problems and problems for other people. And in that sense, it also becomes very much sort of a political um, issue. Do you think it's possible for politicians to be forward-looking and to actually imagine the future that we've got in 50, 100 years, especially with regards to you know, rail infrastructure and public transport? It's partly a question of, you know, can and, and capacity, but it's also just a question of they've got a responsibility. As a, you know, as rulers, governors of our cities, um, they, they have a responsibility to make sure that we are future-proofing um, our cities, which means that thinking really about how do we want Melbourne to look like and to function, not just in the next four or 10 years, but in the next 50 years. I mean, it's their primary responsibility. This is, this is not the responsibility of, of, of business, um, of universities or, or, or citizens, even though they obviously are a part of this, of this story. But it's our elected governors... Um, leaders of, of, of our cities and regions that should you know think about how do we make sure that these places are as thriving as livable as as great places as, as, as they are now also in, 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 in the long term future. What do you think the key attributes are of a resilient city? A resilient city is a city that constantly is mindful of its you know a, a changing environment. It's a city that doesn't become complacent. And that's an interesting one because, you know, Melbourne, I was partly attracted to coming to Melbourne because it's the world's most livable city. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Tricked you. Um, And it it is in many ways a very livable city, but that that status can also create complacency about, you know, where we made it. Um, and similarly, like, you know, we've got so many universities, we've got so many talented people, we're an innovative city, we made it. Well, you know, that creates really the issue of, well, but, you know, the world is changing, the economy is changing. Um, if you just think, you know, you made it, then you're absolutely not being resilient. I also love, I mean, I love thinking about uh, our approach to cycling and I don't cycle, I catch public transport. However, I know that uh, from your own experience and having brought a family over here and deciding not to buy a car and then wondering how in heck you're going to get around and the frustration probably with the aggressive nature of driving in Melbourne and the aggressive uh, culture around cyclists. I mean, it, we are so far off yeah. being a cycling city. But I would I wouldn't like to sort of say blame, you know, turn it into a blame game. Um, you because, take all the fun out of this. <laughs> sorry, but you know, equally, I could see that cyclists can be extremely aggressive and hostile towards car drivers, or not hostile, perhaps, but disrespectful, disrespectful of understanding, you know, how cars are are using the roads and what rules they need to sort of follow. So it's more about learning to share the road rather than, you know, having um, a privileged position for bicyclists or car drivers. And, of course, you know, I would, it, was, it would be impossible, I guess, to, to live in Melbourne with a family of two, three children and not drive around with a car. I mean, we, we are using car sharing to, you know, because so, occasionally we, we really need a car. Um, but using, at the same time, you know, the bike a lot, 
at least makes me sort of um, conscious and aware of you know I really should pay attention to 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 bicyclists and sort of pays attention to how I'm using the road, and that I shouldn't just sort of squeeze my car in front of a, a bicycle lane, um, and and things like that. So I think you know by more people getting in bikes also creates a uh, a more friendly, a more respectful, a more collaborative uh, road sharing culture. So you moved to Melbourne from across the world uh, to pursue your work. So. I guess because of that, I'm interested to know what does success look like for you when you leave in five years, if you leave or however, what does it look like for you? It would, I mean, on a personal level, I want to constantly learn um, to me, you know, that, that's that's what development is about. It's about learning about, you know, new places um, and by learning about new places and how they innovate and how they address sustainability uh, you also learn a lot about yourself. So it was for me really, really interesting to to come to Melbourne because I felt like I've been, you know, working in Scandinavia for 15 years and I've become kind of um, a bit myopic about that. So to me, it's it's very much sort of you know, you know, of course I want to be successful in the sense of, you know, writing you know papers that are being accepted in key journals and getting research grants and all that. But these are just sort of means to an end. Uh, and the end being, you know, to get a better understanding how, you know, we can foster innovation in a purposeful way that contributes to making our societies, our cities and our regions more sustainable. Um, but I'm not seeing that there's sort of a, a definite sort of end goal along the way. It's more like, okay, we're just going to, you know, learning more about the, the phenomenon and, you know, having a better understanding will hopefully also help us to you know better manage um, and address that, that those challenges. I suspect you may have answered this, but you started your academic life, I believe, as a chemical engineer. Yep. I might have got that wrong, but you seem to have morphed a lot since then. And so I'm interested in what's driven your own innovation. So, I mean, I've always been very interested in technology, initially then as an engineer, but because I was sort of witnessing how, you know, how you do, how you produce in technology, I became challenged and triggered to start studying it from different perspectives. So the, I guess that interest in technology will always be there. But I really would like to, you know, understand it from a technological, from a cultural, social, economic, political perspective. And I guess the same sort of ha- is a story around sustainable development. There's an economic, social, environmental component to that. I would like to sort of take different perspective and, and dimensions um, on on a phenomenon or on a, on a project, not just reducing it to oh this is just an economic challenge or oh this is just a political challenge. And and this is an, a bit of a challenge I find sometimes in Australia. Uh, and in the Australian academic landscape, because it, you know, that kind of brings me back to being a multidisciplinary scholar. You know, there's a tendency to, to reduce problems and research to, oh, this is a clear political challenge. This is a clear economic challenge, without really seeing that it is, you know, it, it, it transcends just that one discipline or that one perspective or that one dimension. I was interested. I was, was going to ask a question about the ego of the researcher and whether the sol- how does the solitary expert deal with collaboration. However, maybe it's actually the fact that we don't sponsor or reward those who do cross or who do collaborate, who are interdisciplinary. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, being a multidisciplinary scholar always makes you a generalist, and the way that you achieve 
prestige and excellence and respect in the academic sort of system is often by being a, a, a dedicated specialist expert. So every time I go into a meeting with other scholars, I find that I know a little bit about what they're doing, um, but I know also a lot about you know other stuff. Um, but I always feel like I'm a bit of an amateur in economics. I'm a bit of an amateur in social science. I'm an amateur in political science. But yeah, I guess I have to live with that. Um, and because I, w- I want to sort of see, you know, the the big picture, probably, take the heli- helicopter view. Probably makes you far better at translation, though. Yeah, I mean, interdisciplinarity is not just about, you know, crossing, cutting across disciplines. It's also about cutting across, you know, academic and other types of knowledge. So, um, you know, in the example of, you know, the collaboration with the city of Melbourne, what I really enjoy there is it's this is not just you know my, my chair is not just an academic position it is also really working with non-academic stakeholders and to learn from the knowledge and the learnings that they generate in, in their practice and again i think you know we'd, we'd be better off not just putting academics research and, and and knowledge on a pedestal but acknowledging that a lot of important knowledge and learning happens outside universities so um, I've just become the VC of Melbourne University. I'm wondering, what's your bit of advice for me to better foster innovation? You've got a couple of minutes to convince me, and maybe you've got one or two bullet points. Yeah. So, I mean, at the moment, Melbourne Uni sort of puts innovation in between research and commercialization. And at the same time, it's doing really great stuff in the area of engagement. I mean, this, the University of Melbourne is an active player also in the city of Melbourne, I'd like to see all these sort of, you know, strands coming together and sort of calling that innovation, not just, you know, the stuff that's between research and commercialization, but equally the work that University of Melbourne is doing in terms of engagement is an example of how this university can be innovative. So it's really just sort of opening up how we understand innovation. What's uh, the best piece of advice that you've been given as a, as a researcher and, and what's something you'd like to pass on? Being a researcher, you have to sometimes deal with quite some um, skepticism. You have to have a sort of a, a tough skin because you're being constantly challenged and criticized. And yeah, that's a, there's a good point to that because that sort of improves your work. Um, so you'd have to be really passionate about what you're doing and sort of, even though this is a very rational world, also follow your heart and follow your intuition and you know, allow yourself to make mistakes. So, you know, talking about the piece of advice, it's probably that one, is acknowledging that research is a human endeavor and humans are fallible creatures. We make mistakes all the time. But the way we talk about research and the way we talk about the universities as, you know, a place of, you know, close to God, um, the ivory tower, it has a, a very high status in, in society as you know the conveyors of truth and how we understand the world. But to get there, we are making so many mistakes, but that's always that's sort of forgotten in, in the storytelling about universities and about academia. And I think that's uh, sort of what my some of my um, my mentors have have conveyed to me is like just allow yourself to make mistakes because you'll learn from that from those. And also try to convey that to to your colleagues that we're we're just doing a, a human an endeavor, nothing more, nothing less. That's so different from my schooling. I can almost uh, see the uh, the calluses from where my teachers wrap me over the knuckles for getting things wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, 
Yeah. Anyway, look, finally, um, when I'm walking down the street or when any of our listeners are walking down the street and we think we've got the idea for a great new innovation, what would you like us to do next? Test it. Try and find out for who is this innovation purposeful, you know, who's going to use it. Try and find those users and, you know, bring them along in your journey. Uh, Tell them, like, I want to work with you. I want to see whether you think this makes sense. Give it a go uh, because it's really, you know, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? So if you just kind of have a great idea and it just stays in your head or in your laboratory, no one's going to find out about it and it'll probably be less good than if you just, you know, trial it early, fail fast, but also, you know, there's so much you would learn from just bringing it into use and, you know, having your users and your stakeholders tell you about, you know, why is your idea, your concept or your product great or why is it just an absolute failure? (laughs) Professor Lars Conan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you to Professor Lars Cohenen, City of Melbourne Chair of Resilient Cities at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 29, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. Don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.